seven of the second series of Guido Talks, and what a busy week it has been. Uh, we're going to dive straight in, but first let me introduce the panel this week, the same as every week. My name's Tom Harwood, and I'm joined by Paul Staines, the founder and editor of Guido Talks, as well as reporter Christian Calgi. Say hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. <laughs> well, um, let's just kick off this week, I think, in the order that it came. Because on Monday, we had a story that we um, scooped just about everyone on, and it set up the theme for the following couple of days. Because, of course, this week, there has been, or at least the first half of this week, the machinations over Manchester really led the news. And we revealed on Monday morning that Manchester MP Yasmin Kasheri had been actually hospitalised as a result of complications with COVID. Um, I've managed to pick this up off a couple of northern Tory sources, actually, who um, were very adamant that it was the case. We verified it, we put it out, and after, after our story had been up for about 30 minutes, Yasmin herself put up a, a, a statement on her Facebook page, and then the rest of the news followed. But this really brought, this, this highlighted the real problem that there is in Manchester now, the hospitalizations are rising, the COVID cases are going from the young to the old, um, and that set up the political scenery for this week. So, Calgi, can you talk us through what happened next? Yeah, I've, you know, as someone who is not uh, that interested in Manchester generally, this week has been a bit of a slog. Uh, but it's all it's, that's been where the focus is because there was this massive row, of course, between uh, Andy Burnham, the Manchester um, authorities, and central government negotiation uh, uh, over how much extra support the Treasury were willing to give Manchester. Uh, the Treasury claimed Andy Burnham was asking for much more than Liverpool had got uh, Andy Burnham defended this by saying Manchester had been under local restrictions a lot longer than uh, other parts of the UK and eventually of course Andy Burnham took the Boris approach to negotiating which was uh, you know or the, the May approach and that no deal was better than a bad deal and uh, scuppered uh, seemingly negotiations uh, after being forced to go down from his final offer of 65 million down to 60 million. Uh, there was a whole uh, farce on the steps of Andy Burnham's office where he was giving a press conference and then it looked as if he just found out that Manchester was going to go into tier three restrictions via Twitter. But eventually it came out that, in fact, Robert Jenrick had privately informed Andy Burnham a few hours prior to that a whole pantomime uh, seemingly uh, resolved primarily by Boris forcing Manchester into local restrictions anyway without Andy Burnham's consent. And then eventually they got the money that Andy Burnham had walked away from in the first place. So a lot of noise could have been a lot less painful uh, both, for both sides, really, and uh, a lot of unnecessary uncertainty, really. An incredible See, amount polling, of noise. And... Yeah, go See on, the Paul. polling from uh, YouGov that basically, in essence, said everyone in the North thought that uh, Andy Burnham won and everyone in the South thought that Boris had won. And uh, I point out the obvious, there's a lot more people in the South, but it was interesting how your home team was the winner in what was really a nil-nil draw, wasn't it? 
Well, it was a strange sort of negotiation to have in the first place, because, of course, 100% of the power to impose a lockdown rests with central government. This isn't anywhere close to where to, to the level of powers that these metro mayors have. Uh, Andy Burnham technically didn't need to have a say. The government didn't need to consult him. They did as an act of, I suppose, generosity. But it was never a negotiation because uh, Westminster holds all the cards. Parliament is sovereign. So really, it was only ever a sort of PR exercise, I suppose, but it was really badly handled. There was no rebuttal operation from number 10. So you had this situation um, when Andy Burnham gave that press conference and the news came through um, that, that just about every journalist was reporting that Manchester was only getting £22 million rather than the £60 million that the government had offered during negotiations. And only later, only I think the next day properly transpired that the £22 million is an entirely separate pot of money to be not, not to do with business support, but to do with, I think, something to do with test and trace. And that the £60 million was there regardless, even though Andy Burnham wanted £65 million. So there was a whole lot of confusion, noise, um, and not very much light. But of course, that was all um, swept away later in the week with the further economic announcements. But one thing that we did take away from that press conference uh, was an unfortunate slip from Andy Burnham, trying to play man of the people, trying to be the sort of salt of the earth Northern Labour MP, saying that all those people on middle incomes, like he was, uh, would, be, uh, would be suffering, of course, due to this pandemic. But of course, Andy Burnham describing himself as being on a middle income is quite a stretch given that his mayoral salary is £110,000 a year. And we looked up the sort of distribution of salary. It's either in the top two or the top 1% of incomes. Um, it's a very, very far stretch from a middle income. And this story did very well uh, on the site this week. <laughs> I knew when we did that story that Twitter was going to go mad and, and sure enough it did and hundreds of people going on about it was a smear. Well, it's a report of a fact and the only reason we reported it was because he falsely claimed he was on middle income. And I, in the great scheme of things, it's not a big story, but I just wonder why Andy Burnham feels the need to do that and claim, and you know, I know... Uh, Tony Blair used to do his uh, Mockney accent and come over all uh, North London and talk about football when I doubt he knew much about football at all. Labour politicians really feel the need to stress their uh, credentials. I imagine with the sort of people the new Labour types hang out with, 110,000 probably is a middle income. It's just not well, relative to the people of Manchester. It's, it's just two biscuits endorsements for Tom, isn't it? <laughs> just two sponsored Instagram posts for me. Absolutely. Um, but there was um, a real, genuine, authentic salt of the earth voice from the north, specifically <laughs> from Yorkshire, that popped up after Andy Burnham had had his piece of theatre. Now, Paul, can you talk us through this? Well, I would love to try and do the Yorkshire accent, but I know it would enrage Calgary if I did that. Um, yeah, the, the, she was uh, Vox Pop in the street, BBC stuck a microphone in front of her, and she did a stream of consciousness that could have been a combination of uh, reading Toby Young's Lockdown Skeptics and uh, Chris Snowden's uh, despair at um, the whole economic programme that we're under. 
And she said, who's going to pay for it after all this lockdown? Where are all the jobs going to come from? And it's not going to be her because she's 83 and she'll be dead. And it's a very fair point. It is all very well splurging billions. And we are splurging. Uh, uh, there was a chart where people, uh, George Eaton, the new statesman, said, it's not so bad. We, we spent more in World War II. <laughs> and the Great Depression. And the Great Depression. Well, if it's not as bad as World War II or the Great Depression are your benchmarks when it comes to government spending, uh, you've got to really rethink things. It's fair to say that I think the last war debts weren't paid off till uh, this decade. So um, I'm, I'm 53, not 83, so maybe I will pay a bit of these debts off. But it, it, you are going to have to pay for this. And it's not, it's not going to be easy. And it's going to slow down the economy. And it's going to be a, a drag for decades. I mean, have we seen the economic decline that happened in the 1920s in this country, the devaluation of the currency and the uh, shift of the financial centre of the world from solidly in London to somewhere half across the way of the Atlantic? This was a seismic depreciation of this country and really losing its status as a superpower as a result of the weight of that debt. That's well, not something to be sniffed at. That's not something to be sniffed at. The Americans are paranoid that by the end of this century, the centre of gravity for the planet will have moved towards Asia. Yeah. And I think, to some extent, that's inevitable. Not just China. I think, you know, in 50 years' time, India will be up there as well. Uh, and, you know, all those fast-growing Pacific Rim countries, it's, the world is going to be very different. And I'm not you, sure you mean to say true. those countries that aren't taking on trillions of dollars in debt as a result of this pandemic? Well, there's a lot of competitive devaluation. Uh, the Chinese aren't getting out of this scot-free either. Everybody, the only reason we're not seeing massive moves in currency markets is because everybody's devaluing effectively. Mm. And that's why you're seeing asset prices go up. So when people say, oh, where's the inflation? Well, have you looked at house prices lately? It's a fair point. Um, <laughs> I try not to, frankly. <laughs> So um, we should probably move on from talking about um, international affairs to look at a more parochial question of Prime Minister's questions, because it was very interesting, actually, after the dire couple of days that the Conservative Party had in terms of the general discourse, that a lot of commentators were saying that Keir Starmer failed to land any blows, really, on Boris Johnson this week in PMQs. Whereas he has conclusively, I think it's fair to say, won a few PMQs in the past, this last two weeks, Keir Starmer seems to have been more on the back foot. And quite a few people have been noticing this, not just people uh, who are more sympathetic to Boris to start with. And, and I think I've got a, a bit of a theory as to this, because finally you see a bit of passion behind the Prime Minister's eyes, because he has something he can grapple with. For the first time in months and months and months, the Labour Party over the last two weeks has had a policy of its own, a real actual policy, a, a flag in the sand, which, which can be criticised and compared to. Um, so when Keir Starmer stands there and demands why the Prime Minister isn't doing X, Y and Z, the Prime Minister can quite rightly come back and say the leader of the opposition 
wouldn't wouldn't do this he'd do something even worse he'd plunge the country into an almost indefinite perhaps repeated lockdown closing up all of the sectors of the economy we're trying so hard to keep open um and that has changed the dynamic really in prime minister's questions and it's allowed boris to have a lot more sort of positivity around him which was always lacking of course if you're trying to shut down the economy now he has something to fight for and i think that's yeah. that's done him well well a dividing line is always uh, uh something you can battle across also i think if you look at him he's got a little bit more energy back in him i think um he was looking a bit down in the dumps a few a few weeks ago months ago wasn't he yeah, I mean, there's all these accusations of sort of long COVID and stuff. And, and number 10 were very strenuous in, in denying that. Um, but, but he seems to have perked up a little, whatever it is. Um, I, he's done another secret trip to, the, to Italy, I don't know. The thing I couldn't understand is, is that the, it was such an open goal on Manchester. It, was, it would have been really easy for Keir Starmer to stand up. Andy Burnham's... Uh, speech he gave in the street after that day of negotiations when they'd folded. Actually, there were some really great rhetorical flourishes. Um, it was very passionate. And Starmer failed to deliver any of it. So it wasn't just that Starmer has a much weaker defence now that he is proposing a bonkers policy, but the attack is just completely flaccid also. Uh, and it's a deeply, deeply... Um, it's not so much boring now, but, you know, Boris is just, he can just stand there and flail about and get, land some easy punches. Before we, before we move on from this topic, there's another mayor I think we should mention, and that, of course, is Sadiq Khan, who this week came out against the curfew and was saying that we should cancel the curfew and, and open bars up again. And the, but I'm, the problem here is that there was one person calling for the curfew before it was instituted by the government. And his name was Sadiq Khan. He's taken the whole agree, uh, U-turn, criticise approach of the Labour Party to a whole nother level. He's added advocate before agree. Um, and now he's turned around completely U-turn to criticise. I think it's just I thought it was quite Trump. It. I thought it was quite Trumpian, the way he campaigned against what he campaigned for within a matter of weeks. You know, and it shows that you can rely on politicians now to to expect voters won't remember. Yeah, and they're probably right. I mean, who on earth is paying attention to what Sadiq Khan is saying, is wittering on about day to day? I know I try to avoid it. Um, sadly, in the job, I have to listen. But um, I think the average Londoner would have no idea that uh, Sadiq Khan was one of those people that was actually, uh, or probably the highest profile figure, who was pushing for a curfew in the first place. Um, pretty brave. It's, the, it's certainly the only rational explanation of why he's currently about 27% ahead in the polls. Uh, that, that people just cannot be listening. He's, uh, if, if, <laughs> there's certainly one person that's not listening to what, uh, to what Sadiq Khan's saying, and that's Sadiq Khan. Because uh, <laughs> it wasn't just the 10pm curfew, but the same speech where he advocated a 10pm curfew. Yeah. He said, we yeah. want one so we don't have to lock down. And now he's calling for a circuit breaker lockdown and an end <laughs> to the restrictions of the 10pm curfew. I mean, well, he, has, he has previous for this. I remember years ago, we did a piece on Guido um, where we have video of him in the back of an Uber saying he's an Uber man. This is when Uber yeah. was cool and the new, new thing. And then we have a video of him saying, as far as he can recall, 
he's never been in an Uber. <laughs> I, I, we've got the video. We have the receipts. Amazing, amazing. This was a bit like, I'm going back to another um, Labour mayor, Andy Burnham, doing this interview in 2010 when he was running for the leadership on sort of a, a, on, the, on a Blairite ticket, doing an interview with The Sun, getting into a black cab and sort of talking about how great The Sun newspaper is. And then in 2015, absolutely disparaging The Sun newspaper. I mean, these, it seems to be there's a consistent thread of the current crop of the Labour Party just love spinning their U-turns. Um, they, they just can't help themselves. It's our job to make sure they don't get away with it. Right. Well, speaking of um, parliamentary machinations, there was another big story this week beyond Manchester and beyond mayoral uh, frivolity. Um, can you talk us through this, Calgi? Yes. Well, the, the other story uh, of the week uh, has been uh, Mark... Rashford, Rashford. Sorry, I'm not Marcus. a football uh, fan. Marcus, right? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not a football fan, but I do really? know what he is calling for. I do know what he is calling for. That is, he wants free school meals extended uh, into specifically this Christmas period and potentially beyond. And there was a Labour Opposition Day motion last night, and a Tory PPS lowest possible ranking payroll role you can take. Uh, Caroline Ansell resigned uh, while voting for the Labour Opposition Day motion to give free school meals to children. Um, it's, I've, I, think, I think there's probably disagreement uh, in the team over this issue. I, for one, on a, on a purely sort of political comms basis, cannot comprehend why such a huge amount of political energy has been exhausted by the Conservatives fighting this issue, which as a funding uh, debate goes, is complete chicken feed in comparison to the money that's been spent so far during COVID. Well, Christian, uh, and, it's because and makes the you are at deeply heart unpopular. Deeply it's because, unpopular. It's because, on economics, you are at heart of lefty. It's also a big ideological question. Is it the role of the state to literally look after us from cradle to grave, including meals in between. The state cannot do everything, Calgary. I'll let Tom come in for... <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think the further point here is um, how you alleviate the problem of child poverty. Now, the specific proposal that the Labour Party is putting forward is that you keep schools open, presumably all year round and you have children coming in during the holidays just to have a food like have it like being sort of like a food kitchen or whatever now i don't think that that's a particularly healthy way to run a society i would much rather the government i don't think i'd, I'd oppose the government increasing fiscal net transfers to poorer families so that they can buy food and cook food and all that sort of thing if we increase um, universal credit, particularly during this pandemic period, that would be fine. I think the problem that I have and the fundamental ideological problem here is provision rather than funding. And it's, it's absolutely understandable if the government is literally shutting down a business, if the government is taking away uh, jobs from people, the government should support them in their income. What the government shouldn't do is be providing the services. That's the role of business. That's not the role of the state. So I think I've got a, a much bigger problem with the state actually doing the provision 
than the state giving the funds for it, because that sets people up for the long term, being able to provide for themselves, being able to, you know, teach a man to cook rather than cooking for the man himself. Yeah, but we talk about the long term, and, and if these were normal times, I'd be agreeing with a lot of these points. I don't agree that free school meals should be continued into the holidays. But if you actually look at the wording of yesterday's motion, if you look at the specific debate that's going on at the moment, these are very abnormal times. And okay, I think you're not going to be able context, to, if you do it, you're no, not you going to be able to of take course, it away. No. You're just not. Of course you you're just not. You no, because then, Labour, because then Labour will no. have all of these adverts, they're taking away food from children's mouths, they're taking away yeah. rather, and it's much harder to take something away than give it. And here's the thing. But that's, that's there is, they, the, the, the Conservative Party should come out with, a, with another countervailing policy that says, we are going to literally give these families money so that they can buy the food. That is far more preferable. That is far more dynamic. That, is, that will work far better than having someone's life run for them well, by the, the state. Is... And actually, with universal credit, it's one of the things. I think that universal credit hasn't had enough um, praise, really, because through the whole, whole course of this pandemic, you know, there's been a mess in test and trace. There's been a mess in so many elements of this. But actually, the system that was set up originally by Ian Duncan Smith has worked really smoothly. There hasn't been a big w, um, DWP crisis. There hasn't been a big UC crisis because it's a system that works. It's a good transfer system. And if you, uh, during a time of absolute crisis, pump a bit more money to it, into it, that's a good thing. Let's jump ahead to what Angela Rayner got in a bit of trouble for this week in the House of Commons pool. Angela Rayner was uh, on the front bench and a Tory MP pops up, starts talking, and she calls him Tory scum. She claims it's because he accused her of being opportunistic, but I think it was just because she disagreed with the policy position vigorously. Um, the Eleanor Lang, the Deputy Speaker, intervened, told her in no uncertain terms to not do that. And then there was this hiatus of about three hours before... I imagine Starmer or somebody lent on her or she had second thoughts and uh, she apologised. Well, we didn't get an uh, actual apology in person. I imagine when she next appears on TV, she'll be invited to apologise in person. You know, they're not going to let her get away with that. So, a little bit strong, but it's not the first time a Tory's been called Tory scum, I imagine. And it certainly won't be the last. Um, but I think we should probably move on from parliamentary machinations to some of the more investigative stuff that's gone on this week because we've revealed an absolutely enormous sum of public money has been given to a solo performer that's that's the arts council um that has been giving out money to sort of arts institutions that can't um, function or have been told to shut, whether that's sort of orchestras or museums, civic centres, whatever, have been given money. But one solo drag performer was given £215,000 uh, for, for just sort of not performing. Now that's more than this drag performer has taken in in any previous year that, that they have declared in their uh, on company's house and it's just an extraordinary amount of money that has gone to what looks like a total solo performer 
just one. That's your story, Tom. Getting... Have you have you managed to get the Arts Council to explain why they're giving uh, this uh, drag artist two hundred fifteen thousand, and regional theatres are getting zero? So I was on the phone to the Arts Council a bit earlier on Thursday, and I have been assured I am getting an email through. Uh, with uh, a lot more context and explanation. So as soon as we get that, I'm sure that we'll divulge more on the website when we can. And, and this, this drag artist, is he, is he available for coming? The drag artist unfortunately locked his Twitter account immediately after. I replied to one of his tweets that was criticising the government for splurging money on some things, I think on Test and Trace or whatever. I asked, what about on these sort of performers? and uh, included a screenshot of the £215,000 that he received um, in the second round of this arts funding um, giving out. But unfortunately, there was no reply and the Twitter account was locked. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. What else, what else was unbelievable was, um, on the midweek, I think it was, a uh, young... Uh, interviewer, not that experienced, um, asked a controversial, a well-known controversialist, Len McCluskey, about Peter Madison. And, Pete, and uh, Len McCluskey said he should go away and stick to counting his gold or something like that. Now, Peter Madison is of Jewish heritage. Uh, that's a well-known anti-Semitic trope. You could argue about uh, what was the meaning behind Len McCluskey's words. But Darren Grimes who was also interviewing a well-known controversialist who said something a bit off, got a police investigation. I wonder will BBC Newsnight's Lewis Goodall get the same treatment? Incidentally, uh, the good news on Darren Grimes is that the police have said no further action will be happening um, because they don't want to waste their own time, frankly. <laughs> Although you wonder if that would have happened if there wasn't a bit of an, an outcry. And of course, I think we should, we should be saying that obviously Lewis Goodall shouldn't be investigated by the police. Obviously, BBC New Newsnight should have been allowed to broadcast that statement. And journalists shouldn't be, get, shouldn't be investigated for things they ask, or interviewers shouldn't be uh, investigated for things they ask their guests, or indeed broadcasters shouldn't be investigated for publishing those sorts of interviews. Um, but it is an interesting comparison to make, and thank goodness the police have finally um, dropped that. But um, we did also report this week on a further police investigation or, or a police um, report. Calgi, can you talk about that? Yeah, well, it's just been an appalling week for the BBC press office, I imagine, because they've also, the BBC has been uh, the producer of Frankie Boyle's, um, I wouldn't say comedy show, debating program, uh, and the director have uh, been reported to the police over the uh, uh, just uh, you know the incredible broadcast that we covered a couple of weeks ago, where one of the guests uh, said we want to kill Whitey. Uh, there was this absolutely um, you know nonsensical. Uh, discussion uh, about uh, racism in in Britain, uh, and uh, they've they've been reported to the police. Now, again, I, how do we how do we judge this? Do we think that's a good idea, uh, or do we allow a level of freedom of speech? What's the what's the cutoff point for the BBC broadcasting uh, offensive left wing content? 
Well, I suppose it wouldn't matter if the BBC wasn't publicly funded and wasn't in effect an arm of the state. Uh, then we wouldn't have to have these conversations because they could say whatever they wanted to and they'd probably get a lot less uh, viewership. But Calgary, um, were, you, were you generally offended though? I know, I know you suffer terribly from white privilege. Were you offended? I, I just didn't find it funny. It was deeply unfunny. Um, I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't offended because I felt they were talking about whiteness as a concept rather than encouraging people to actually go out and kill white people. But then again, that is, that is another sort of terminological university, almost uh, quasi-university debate. Uh, I was offended I'll... that it was in the category of comedy. It shouldn't it yes, have been in the I category was... of... Uh, political yeah. debate but no it shouldn't have been in the category of political debate because there was no debate they all agreed with each other for an hour um but on that note we're going to close this podcast where the three of us have almost agreed with each other for no, slightly less than an hour <laughs> a hell of a lot more debate on guido talks than on frankie boyle's bbc show By the way, that cobweb on the mantelpiece is Halloween decoration related to you. <laughs> We're going to include that at the end. That's the bonus track. I thought you'd just been. I, th- I thought you'd been sloppy with the housework. I just noticed. Is there any more? Is there something else we could put in there? <laughs>